This episode of the Tech Money Podcast is sponsored by Capital Area Tax Consultants. Capital Area Tax Consultants is a virtual tax and accounting firm that specializes in helping high net worth individuals navigate the complexities of the tax code. While our team of tax pros are well-versed in all things tax, our areas of expertise include rental real estate and equity compensation. With our comprehensive tax planning services, our one goal is to help clients maximize savings and minimize their tax liability each year. At Capital Area Tax Consultants, we believe in pricing transparency and flat fees. Before engaging with us, you'll receive an upfront quote in black and white with a description of any services to be performed. This way, there are no hidden surprises. So don't wait. Reach out to us today to experience a better approach to taxes at www.capgllc.com. Again, that web address is www.capgllc.com. Welcome to the Tech Money Podcast, where the worlds of technology and personal finance collide. Hosted by certified financial planner, speaker, blogger, and self-proclaimed personal finance nerd, Malcolm Etheridge. Each episode aims to make you just a little bit smarter about your money, all from the perspective of the tech professional. Without further delay, here's your host. Hello, listeners. Malcolm here. And on today's show, we're talking about career advancement. More specifically, we're talking about the important role that mentorship plays in the success of a founder, how to identify the right mentor, and how to know whose advice is actually worth listening to. In the simplest terms, a mentor is anyone who possesses more experience and knowledge than you in a given industry. They have skills you want to master in order to thrive, and you'd rather lean on their experience and expertise and learn from their mistakes rather than having to go and make those same mistakes on your own. Entrepreneurs need mentors, especially and perhaps more than other professionals, simply because it's nearly impossible to formally teach entrepreneurship in any controlled setting. There's just too many variables that will inevitably change from entrepreneur to entrepreneur and business to business. And as anyone who's ever had a successful exit before can tell you, it takes at least one great mentor to be successful. Hearing the right advice at the right time can make all the difference to our founder. And while most young, ambitious entrepreneurs understand how important this concept is to their growth, they often struggle to find a business mentor. And while I certainly recognize the value of finding the right mentor as a founder and how the right advice at the right time can make all the difference in a startup succeeding or not, I am by no means the expert here. So I decided to call up someone who is living this and have a conversation. My guest, Ron Bauer, is the managing partner of Theseus Capital a venture capital firm that has worked with a wide array of entrepreneurs in diverse fields, such as life sciences, technology, ed tech, and natural resources. In recent years, Ron has moved much of his focus towards providing business mentoring and guidance to rising startup founders whose ideas have the potential to change and impact millions. Over the past 20 years, Ron has been both a venture capitalist and entrepreneur. His main focus is the life sciences sector, where he's created a number of excited ventures side-by-side with some of the world's leading scientists in coordination with world-class academic institutions such as Vanderbilt, Oxford, Cambridge, Stanford, and Cornell, just to name a few. He's experienced in the M&A and corporate finance aspects of business, and he also holds an MBA from the University of Cambridge. So with that brief introduction, welcome Ron Bauer to the Tech Money Podcast. Hi, thank you. Thank you for having me today. 
Yeah, sure. No, I appreciate you being here. And, you know, I, I know I breezed through your resume pretty quickly there in my intro. What else should I have included? Oh my God. I mean, you've, uh, you've opened the door there for me. You've given such a great introduction. I should, uh, take you with me everywhere I go. <laughs> Ceremonies. Yeah, honestly, you've done a great, a great job in there. Honestly, I can't uh, add any more. Okay. I, I'll, I'll take that too. That, that, that speaks volumes to the team as far as uh pre-production and, and being prepared. So I, I will certainly take that compliment on behalf of the whole team here, but you know, to get us teed up here, you know, from what I understand, you guys, you know, at Theseus get involved from the seed stage and you plan to stick around and have an active role all the way through IPO or some other exit for the founders that you back. Right. And that's not necessarily common. Usually folks will tout themselves as, you know, we're an early stage or mid stage or late stage shop. Why have you guys decided to spread your focus and resources that way? You know, we didn't really plan. And so, you know, I come out originally, you know, my background is I was a founder and entrepreneur and I created businesses myself with my partners and I had a big exit in 2010 on the, the tail end of the crisis. So during, I created a company just before the crisis was an oil and gas company focused on Africa. It was in Kenya and, you know, we carried it through the crisis, almost went bust, you know, lost a ton of our companies. We shut down. In the summer of 2009, you know, right at the tail end of the crisis, we merged that company with a company that went from a billion dollars to 200 million market cap. And it became a huge success story. Kenya is now an oil producing nation because of our company. Hmm. And what happened was, as I moved back to the UK, my wife's British, she wanted the kids to go to school in the UK. So I moved to London, moved back to the UK, and I wasn't sure what I wanted to do, Malcolm, with my life. It was sort of my second phase of my life. You know, I was in my, in my 30s, had this exit. And so I went back to school decided to do an MBA at Cambridge. And while at the university, I was introduced to a number of opportunities. One of my professors asked me to get involved, you know, with my background and with my experience in venture capital, he asked me to get involved in a couple of, of life sciences ventures. Mm -hmm. And I really, you know, and I said to him, I said, you know, what do I know about life sciences? I'm an oil and gas and mining guy. <laughs> and, you know, when you look at it, there's really no major difference between biotech and oil and gas and mining, if you think about it, uh, if you look at it on the face value. So oil and gas and mining, you're buying an asset, you're building a team around it, you're drilling for oil, there's either oil or there isn't. Gold, let's say, or silver, it's a longer track. You know, you can drill a little bit, drill a few holes here, or drill a few holes there, send it to a lab, evaluate it. Yeah. Biotech is, you know, you're, you tough it out at university in a lab, you're working on a therapeutic or a cure for a disease or a medical device. You get a grant here and there from a university or from a benefactor. And then you take it through the clinic and there's different stages. There's preclinical, there's pre, there's phase one, phase two, phase three, and then you go through FDA approval. So when you break it down like that, there's really no difference. Instead of working with oil and gas and mining guys and oil projects, you're working with scientists and, you know, trying to find a cure or a solution for a problem. And so, I came and did a, a university spin out at, with Cambridge where, you know, we backed it, went out and raised money. And we all of a sudden saw a gap in the market. And so this whole thing started as I would say as early stage university spin outs. And we sort of took our first deal through the entire process from creating the company, raising the, the private rounds to the pre-IPO to the IPO and the aftermarket. And then that's where the process 
came about and we all of a sudden the light bulb went on and there was this huge gap in the market where we realized there were all these academics and scientists mm-hmm. that by the time they if they did a deal the traditional venture out by the time they did that deal you know they owned so little of the company and whereas we were coming in and providing support in the background they were in control and they were in the driver's seat and, the, and we were not intervening in their creative freedom so the process came you know out of necessity does that make sense it does and i didn't really recognize as i was you know teeing as i was reading through your bio and teeing up the episode i didn't realize how much of a role academia and that scientific method all all together really played in shaping your vantage point as a VC. But as you say that, it it helps to make it clear because what I was thinking about was so much of the academic uh, process and the scientific method is about learning from those who have been there forever and are passing down what they have managed to figure out in their stint so that the next group of people coming behind them can advance what they studied, you know, that much further. And it sounds like you're basically applying that same thought process and methodology to the way that you invest, which would also explain why you take more of a hands-on approach and focus on being a mentor and that sort of thing to your VCs. No, 100%. I mean, you know, that's, and I mean, you nailed it spot on, you know, and, and, you know, what I found is that these scientists and these academics, they're brilliant and they have amazing minds and great talents, but they're either disorganized or they have no capital market experience or no fundraising experience, or they just don't even know where to begin yeah. on the capital raising and on the potential for a listing opportunity. And too often and too many times, these scientists would sort of give up too much too early and we sort of brought the power back to them in a way with this whole process. Well, let me ask you this, uh, sort of a different question, but I think building on what you just described, in your opinion, what would make someone a good mentor as a VC? And I ask this simply from the perspective of all VCs are not good mentors. I think experience. I think the first thing is experience. You know, I mean, I've, you know, I'm giving, I'm, I'm mentoring I'm mentoring the founders and entrepreneurs that I work with from a position of strength that mm-hmm. I've experienced what they're going through. So I'm not just one of these textbook mentors or, or a lot of these people you see on social media or you read about or you buy their books at bookstore and Amazon and they're mm-hmm. giving all this advice that they either they learn themselves or they studied in academia. I've actually walked the same journey of all the founders and entrepreneurs that I'm mentoring. So that's the first thing. I have experience. Whether it's good and bad, I have both, you know, I've had great success stories. I've also had big failures, you know, where I've lost a lot of money and I've made mistakes and I've learned from those mistakes, which is, you know, probably more important than anything. So I've, I've experienced what they're going through and I can, you know, I have 20 years of experience. So not like two or three or four years experience. So I can, I've seen the good, the bad and the ugly. And I feel that I'm in a position now, you know, where I'm touching 50 soon and I've been through listing companies on all markets around the world, raising hundreds of millions of dollars, if not billions, that I can give really candid, open, hands-on advice from from my heart and from my experiences. Well, let's dig in there a little bit deeper then, because I read online as I was getting prepared for this episode that you have a formula or 
a roadmap that you use with all of your entrepreneurs that you also attribute to your own success uh, or you also attribute your own success to, I should say. Can you walk us through it a little bit? Yeah, of course, of course. So, so I'm I'm a big believer in preparing and planning, you know. And you know, I read today all the time about people saying, "Oh, you need to wake up in the morning or prepare to do list at nighttime." You know, I've been preparing to do lists and waking up early for you know my whole life. And so, my first roadmap is really what I like to do is I like to I like to break down the business when I meet someone and they come to me with the business. I always want to hear. I, I tell them, "Give me your pitch. Tell me about the tell me about the business," and and then I get into it as far as tell me your story. I want to understand your personal story. Why and how did you come about this business? Was there a problem you're trying to solve? Is there a personal story? Like, for example, I took public a company that he created, he's working on the cure for leukemia. And when I met him the first time, he started jumping into this presentation. And, you know, I stopped him and I said, tell me, why are you trying to find the cure for leukemia? What's so, why is it so important to you? And he said, you know, you're the first person that's asked me that in months. He says, you asked it once in a while. He says, no, no one really asked me that. And, you know, he created the company not to make money. He created the company because his uncle and father both had blood cancer. So the -hmm. first thing I ask for is let's tell me your story. I want to understand what the story is and let's break it down. My roadmap to success is basically the formula is let's break down your business into, into sections. Let's start with your your story. Let's start with your investor materials. Let's get, for me, first impressions are important. I like to be very focused. So I don't like people that are scattered everywhere. So we start with the formula and say, your story and what the company is about, let's break it down and let's get your investor materials perfect. Let's have a suite of materials which present your business in a proper manner, in an organized manner. Let's get you a copywriter. Let's get you a designer. Let's look at comparables. Let's make sure it presents properly financial projections, use of proceeds, everything. So now we're ready there. And then I work on their pitch, you know, and everyone thinks they're great presenters. And I mean, I could show you nine out of 10 people. They present terribly. They're just, (laughs) you know, and I have a lot of the the academics are the worst, you know, and they say to me, I I tell them, honestly, I say that was the worst presentation I've ever seen. (laughs) Well, because you spend so much time building the technical skill that you don't really focus too much of your time learning that communications. No, even worse, Malcolm, they say to me, look, what are you talking about? What do you know? I'm a professor. I present in front of thousands of students every year. And I'm like, those students have to be there to get their degree. They don't want to be there. I said, it's not like you're giving a TEDx talk where people are coming and vying to get a ticket. You're presenting in a a tutorial or in a classroom with two, 300 people that have to be there to get their degree. I said, there's a big difference when you're going and you're presenting to investors that have, you know, 200 opportunities, you know, every month that are being thrown at them to invest in. So I work in the roadmap from the story, the material, the pitch. Then I sort of zone in on who is your target audience? Who are you going to? I like to force the people I work with to go and raise money from their friends and family first. People come to me and say, I brought you in here because your job is to help me raise money. You know, if I needed to go raise money for my friends and family, why do I need you? And you know what I want them to do is I want them to go and pitch their closest friends and family, because if you can't even get 50 or 100 grand from your friends and family, how do you expect strangers to give you money? I yeah. say that always to people. I don't need them to raise millions, Malcolm. Get like 50, 100 grand, just like struggle. And the, the second and most important reason is if you take money from friends and family, you're now a lot more, you're a lot, you're married to the venture. Does that make you sense? Care, you care more. Oh, failure is not an option now yeah. because now you're going to let down your closest friends and family. So I work on that basis. Then we move up the tier. We move to like seed and angel. We go to investment clubs. 
I take them sometimes to crowdfunding. If the demand is super, super hot, if I see they're raising money from seed and angel investors like that very easily, I'll circumvent a crowdfunding and go right to underwriters, to an investment bank. And so mm. I'll open up my contact list. We'll pitch bankers. If bankers love the deal, we'll do a quick pre-IPO and then we'll we'll plan to do an IPO. So I have like a systematic roadmap where I'm planning out every stage day one. We know exactly where we're going to be for the next month, three months, six months, a year. And then that way we have targets to work towards as far as how much money are we looking to raise at each section? What are the use of proceeds? And, and I'm and I'm con and they're learning each time what objections are going to be thrown their way. So they're getting better and better. I record their presentations and show it to them. You know, I've had a guy, I've had two guys that came, they were PhD students from Cambridge, and their presentation was so bad, and they just they were stuttering, they couldn't present well. So I went out and I hired a speech therapist and a public speaking coach. Hmm. You know, people look at me and say, what, are you crazy? What happened? You can do $2,000. I changed this guy's life. You know, he went from not being able to raise money, he raised $11 million. They're just these little things. That's so my formula is I'll do everything in my power to make sure the founders and entrepreneurs I back are successful. That's the real difference between, you know, our formula and others. Hey there, listeners. It's Eric with an A. And I'm interrupting the show for just a moment to tell you about our newest offering, the Tech Money Guide to Restricted Stock Units. This guide was developed to teach those who are paid in RSUs to develop a plan for how and when to convert those shares into actual dollars, as well as how to incorporate them into your overall personal financial plan. You may have already heard episode 50 where Malcolm described the guide in detail, as well as his own philosophy and rules of thumb when it comes to managing this valuable form of equity compensation. If you haven't, no problem. We would still encourage you to head on over to tech-money.com and download a free copy of the guide today. There's also a link to it in the show notes of this episode. Again, that web address is tech-money.com, and you can download a free copy of the guide right there from the homepage. In keeping with the promise of this show, our hope is that the Tech Money Guide to Restricted Stock Units helps make you just a little smarter about your money. Now back to the show. So since this is the place where you know folks in tech come to get smarter about their money, one of the main reasons I wanted to have you on is that you know, that reputation you were just describing of taking a more hands-on approach with your founders and actually walking them through, these are the different processes we're going to go through to get you to these milestones. And this is what the future is going to look like if you follow, trust the process, I guess is the way to say it, to borrow that popular term in athletics. And we're in a bit of a tougher market these days, right? Where that next check is no longer so certain. And founders are having to hold the reins tighter than usual. So I wanted to have you on to hear, you know, what you're telling your founders about managing their cash burn and the need to get to revenue neutral as quickly as possible, maybe. And anything else you find yourself coaching them on today that you didn't necessarily have as a concern this time last year? Wow, that's, you know, that's a great question. Really is. not And the reason it's such a great question is, is that, you know, as you know, more than anyone just like me. I mean, the market conditions today are, I mean, are drastic. They're dire. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Look at the, look at the dollar to the pound, look at inflation, borrowing rates. I mean, it's crazy. And pre-revenue companies, you know, my specialty is intellectual property, rich businesses, businesses that I'm raising them capital off the back of, you know, the whole basis of the businesses that I'm involved in are their intellectual property asset, rich businesses. Mm -hmm. And they, they're never going to get to revenue. We're raising capital for pre-revenue, intellectual property-rich businesses. 
that are creating solutions to problems. And as you know, just like I, you know, money is tough now. The conditions mm-hmm. have changed. IPOs are down. Financings are down. Private raises are down. So I actually shifted my focus. I saw this coming about, I noticed about six months ago, it was getting already quite difficult to raise money and to con- and to complete IPOs. Not We were still getting deals done, but the, the terms were a lot tougher. Bridge rounds, the interest rates were going up. The conversion was, was a, a steeper discount to the IPO. They wanted warrants attached to them. They were removing floors on warrants. It was getting a lot harder. So I started looking at revenue generating businesses. And, you know, I focused a lot of my efforts on companies like direct to consumer. So I think in the, you know, it's going to be extremely difficult this coming year for companies that have no revenue, even if they have strong intellectual property or strong asset potential, those deals are going to trade at dramatic decreases to their valuation. The valuations yeah. are going to drop dramatically. And the businesses that are going to raise money and are going to do well are these companies that have low burn rates, low overhead, and you know, big cash, big cash flow. Those are going to be the winners. Is there something you would maybe recommend that founders do to be proactive right now then and take advantage of the tougher funding market? Or is it more about keeping your head down and riding out the wave? I think they ha- I think people are going to have to they're going to have to trim their overhead as much as they can. Cash is king right now, as you know, yeah. and, and we're going to go through tough times. It's not going to be as easy. You know, buying a home now is going to cost people. You know, mortgages are going to cost them twice as much potentially. Mm-hmm. You know, interest rates going up, so people are going to rents have gone up already, which is a which is a sign that you know interest rates are higher. So I think that what I'm telling my, you know, portfolio companies I'm involved in, I'm telling all the CEOs, you know, get rid of people you don't need. The good people you have, keep them, but they're going to have to work twice as hard, maybe even three times as hard. And you're going to have to reduce overhead and expenses, you know, go into like a hibernation mode and care and maintenance mode, because it's going to be a difficult year and you can feel it and, and you can see it coming. It's tough. Is your uh, and I know you have no idea what the future holds, so I'm, I'm I'm asking you strictly for your opinion here. But is your assumption that this market cycle is a year that we're talking about? Because you've said next year a couple of times, and so I want to dig in on that. Or are you thinking this is a season that's going to last more than one year, and this is the new norm for? startups is now we've really got to mind the shop, so to speak. And we've really got to be a lot more conscious of how we deploy that capital. And maybe we don't get to hire a team of 50 where uh, 40 would do, right? Those kind of things we were doing in 2019, 20, 21. Uh, Are you seeing this as being something that uh, a shift, I guess, in the landscape is what I mean, versus just a temporary hiccup? You know, if I had a crystal ball, I wouldn't be on this podcast right now. <laughs> I wish, I wish I could. I, you know, if you asked me the same question at the beginning of the epidemic, you know, the beginning of the pandemic when mm-hmm. COVID started, you know, I thought it was life was over. No one mm-hmm. was traveling. Everything was shut down. You know, here I was. I had all these deals. I bankrolled and I backed, and I, and I was sitting on a huge portfolio of private companies that we'd gone out and were ready to, you know, roll out. And I had my best two years ever during the pandemic. Honestly, yeah. it was yeah. like, you know, it was like a free for all. I could have done, you know, every deal I, I rolled out, raised money. Didn't matter. You know, I took pre-revenue companies public. They were throwing money at us. Whatever we wanted to raise, we raised double. You know, I was involved in a deal that 
was pre-revenue raised $70 million. You know, in this market, they'd be lucky to raise $70,000. Yeah. <laughs> and they're, they're sitting on 50 million cash and they're doing nothing. You know, they've got like five employees. They're like, in, in, they're, they're in like, you know, they're riding the gravy train right now. They're just waiting for people to hemorrhage and they're going to take over businesses on pennies on the dollar. So I don't know how long, I hope it's not going to go long. I think the government is very smart with, you know, they're, they're looking at a lot of solutions. I think that the difference this time around from last time is, you know, there's not a lot of debt out there. People have, a, people have cashed up. They've made a lot of money. Businesses are, are operating efficiently. People got used to running, to running, you know, this work from home mentality during the pandemic. They were bootstrapping ideas and new businesses. We have behemoth companies in America, you know, same within the UK. The yeah. dollar is so strong. I mean, just so strong in such proportions that, you know, the US is just going to glide through, in my opinion, a recession. I think people just need to be wiser, you know, and and bootstrap their businesses, reduce their expenses and be ready for, you know, I hope it's not going to be a year. I hope it's not going to be six months. I hope it's only a matter of months. But I think the economy is going to come out strong. I mean, people are complaining the da- you know, Dow's at like 30,000 range roughly. I mean, 30,000 mm-hmm. is high. If you look at it a few years ago, 30,000 is not bad. You know, everyone just got used to this hockey stick growth in the markets consistently. It's not the end of the world if there's, you know, a little bit of a shakedown. Do you know what I mean? Oil yeah, prices I, I'm... Are high, commodities are high. So I don't think it's going to be too bad, as bad as people think. I think people just need to be wiser. Yeah, I... I... I am wondering aloud as I'm talking to you if this is a seismic shift in the VC industry as a whole, because one of the reasons that those blank checks that you were referring to before even existed was it was this perfect storm, this culmination of SPACs becoming a thing that everybody wanted to participate in at the same time, as well as Reg CF and Reg D investments suddenly becoming accessible by everybody. And so literally anybody who wanted to be overnight became a VC. And that is how pre-revenue companies were able to go out and raise eight, nine figures with just a well-crafted deck and a person who was very well-spoken in what their mission and purpose was. And so I don't know that we'll ever see that environment repeat itself again. I wonder if it's a blip on the radar and just one of those things we'll point to in investing history and say, yep, there it was. Or if, to your point, it's something that six months down the road as market conditions become a little bit easier and people start to feel good again and that euphoria starts to bubble up, we'll find ourselves right back there again. I, I really have a hard time with which side of the, the the coin I think we will end up falling on. But to your point, if either of us had a crystal ball, you know, we wouldn't be sitting here having this conversation this way now. But something else you said I, I want to go back to really quickly because it sparked a whole different conversation, which was that, well, two things. One, you mentioned how at the beginning you're working with your founders to teach them how to actually go out there and raise, right? Because they're in academia. They don't necessarily know how to uh, go and and talk to folks in a way that makes them want to write a check. But a question you made me think of was how has COVID, you know, in the shift of virtual everything impacted that advice and the ways, you know, you recommend your entrepreneurs approach that fundraising process? Oh, I mean, it's just been dramatic. I think it's been a lot easier to go and teach my founders and and 
have them succeed because mm-hmm. everyone's working from home. You know, during COVID and during the pandemic, and even coming out of the pandemic, before when I was when I, I would take the founders hand in hand to meetings, and we'd we'd have to spend like weeks on the road meeting people and Zoom and Teams. You know, and these ver- these video uh, conferencing uh, platforms changed everything. You know, I yeah. could have found founders. You know, do eight to 10 meetings a day on Zoom, you know, over a period of a week, they'd be doing 30, 40 meetings consistently. And, you know, what happened is, is the investors also changed. They don't want to meet these founders anymore. These investors would rather sit in their office or at their homes in the Hamptons or in Miami or in LA or wherever they are, or even the Caribbean. And they're with their kids, their grandkids, their, their partners. They don't want someone coming off a plane, getting them sick, getting their family sick. So what happened is, is it's almost become a little bit more impersonal and a bit more proactive in a way. And, it, you know, whether that's good or bad, the good side of it is that you can be a lot more efficient. And so these startup companies could be in their office instead of taking two weeks of productivity out, they could focus four or five hours a day for meetings and still work five, six hours on their products or on their launches or on their software or on their, their therapeutics. Yeah. And so, and it allowed me also to be in six places at one, at, you know, in one day, because, you know, I have a bigger portfolio. Now I have a portfolio of like 15 companies. I could never have been involved in that many deals before COVID, you know, it's just, it's impossible. I mean, I spend now six to eight hours a day. I'm on, I'm on Zoom. The I have, you know, the odd time this week, I've had three people come in and meet me, which is rare, which is so rare. And, you know, still shocked when people say, hey, I'm coming yeah. to London, you know, I'm coming to London. Can we meet? And so the new way of the world is, you know, a Zoom, uh, a Zoom Teams virtual environment. And, and it's actually made my job and of helping and mentoring so much easier and so much more impactful on the founders. Well, one of the areas where I think VCs provide, you know, the most value to startup founders beyond the check, of course is by providing access to your network and providing connections to valuable resources, right? But usually founders tend to focus solely on the check size and how quickly they can actually, you know, receive the cash, which then shifts everybody's focus to raising the most funds you can possibly raise and the biggest check you can possibly get your hands on from whoever will write the check in a way. But do you find that it's possible to be both a good VC and a good mentor, or I guess said another way, can you be a good source of information and contacts and everything else while also being the biggest check writer? You know, you can, you can be both, you know, because obviously if you're a big check writer in a, in a venture, you want to see the venture succeed. So you have, obviously your, your interests are aligned. If you're investing in, in a, in a startup company, you're going to open up your, your entire network, you know, your Rolodex. I said the word Rolodex to one of my founders and they asked, you know, they said, what's a Rolodex? <laughs> you know what it was. Yeah, I'm obviously too old now. And so I think that you, you, the whole point of working with a, with a, with a VC is to have their, not only to have their, you know, not only to have access to their capital, but have access to their network and their experience. And, you know, I've saved, you know, I have a vast network of everything from lawyers, auditors, accountants, underwriters, investment banks, brokers, not just that, but institutional investors, you know, all, sometimes I even go, I'll take a deal that I, that's pitched to me and I'll take it to one of my investors day one and say, 
is this something you would invest in? Mm-hmm. And, and if they say, I love this deal, it's amazing, count me in, then you know I know it's a great deal. And if they say, I'm not so sure about this deal, I'll ask them why. I'm not just gonna, you know, not do the deal, but I want to understand what the reasoning is. You know, and and that's where you know my understanding came to, you know, to focus on revenue generating direct to consumer deals. You know, one of my biggest investors said to me, I'm not writing any checks in biotech or mining or energy. You know, big investor who take who does a multiple deals every week. Yeah. And that all of a sudden the light bulb went on. I said, Oh my God, if this guy's not writing a check and he buys everything, who am I to get involved in this deal? I'm wasting mm-hmm. my time. And you know, the most important thing, Malcolm, is when I get involved in a project, I'm not making money for two, three years, sometimes even longer, because they're private companies. It takes anywhere from six, seven, eight months a year to go public. Sometimes yeah. it takes longer. And then we've got lockups, underwriter lockups on our stock, just like management. And then there needs to be liquidity to sell. So I basically worked, I'm the only guy that's worked for free here, technically, if you think about it. And no one's guaranteeing the stock's going to be up or be down. I, we don't have a crystal ball. So so I think you well, want to- not working out. for free. You bought your job for two or three years. <laughs> no, you, it's like you're married. It's, you're, you're married to the company. You know yeah. what I mean? It's like having a kid, you know? And so, so I think the trick is you want to be as proactive as possible and generous as possible with your contacts, not just as generous with your money. Yeah. I, I, I don't find that everyone in the world of VC shares your view. So that's the reason I asked the question that I did the way that I did. I, I don't know that I necessarily expected the answer that I got and the way that you answered it. I didn't really yeah. have a preconceived uh, notion, but I find that sometimes I won't say often or anything like that, but sometimes VCs that I talk to off the record, off the air, whatever, have a position of I'm either just here to write the check and that's it. And some of them will do really well with it and others of them won't. And that's the VC game. I just need one really good winner to make up for all the losers. Or they say, I have a really big Rolodex as you, (laughs) the term that you use, and I'm more than happy to pull out one of those contacts at any given moment and allow my entrepreneurs to leverage my contacts and my years of experience and everything else to get where they're trying to get to, because that's ultimately going to help me get, get a return on my, my investment. But I rarely hear people take the stance that they really want to be good at both. They want to be the bigger check. They want to be all three stages of the startup cycle, all those kind of things. And so that's what I think is really unique about the approach. It's not just one or the other. It's really like, let me take you along this journey that I already know how the story is going to end before you ever even get started because I've seen it happen so many times. So one of the things that I think, you know, rounding this out a little bit is a misconception with regards to finding a mentor, right? So taking the other side of this from the entrepreneur's perspective, it's that it, it's a per, it's that it's a person should expect to have a lifelong relationship with you, right? And people think about this through the lens of whether they'll want to know this person and have lunch with them and go on vacation with them. And every time I'm in London, I'm popping in to see you, you know, for the next 20 years, right? And I think that's a mistake. I think it's important that folks recognize, you know, your mentor may only be in your life for a season and that's okay, right? Maybe they're just there to help you get to launch and that's the entirety of their expertise they have to share or maybe they're just there to help you learn how to grow up as a company so that you can get to and get through an IPO and that's it and so it's important you know to first put some thought into 
what you even need out of that mentor mentee relationship. And then you start to look for the right person. But uh, the question I'm building up to after all of that is really uh, how do you advise folks, entrepreneurs who maybe aren't even the entrepreneurs you're investing in, but how do you advise folks to go about the process of finding that right fit, that right mentor for where they are and what they have going on and what they need in the moment? Wow, it's so hard. You know, I think it's a mixture of, you know, luck and being in the right place at the right time in, in a lot of senses. And I think it's very difficult to go out and seek a mentor. You know, I think it's, my advice would be, go and look and search for someone that you think can help you and reach out too. you know, I've gone out and reached out. I've had great mentors in my life so far. And one of them I went and just reached out to and I said, you know, I really respect you. I've had great success. I'm looking to get into this sector in this space. I just don't know how to get into it. I would love for you to mentor me and get involved with me and be involved with me in a project. And you know, that gentleman said, Hey, I've been looking to meet someone like you that can help and raise money. I'm more than happy to guide you and mentor you and let's do something together. So I, so I think the key is look for someone in your area of specialty or your area of focus and approach that person. And, you know, don't ever be afraid to ask what's the worst thing. You know, I've never been afraid of rejection. It's like dating, you know, listen, you go and you ask 10 people, you know, if, if eight of them say no, two of them are still saying yes, it's a numbers game. So don't ever be embarrassed to reach out to people and ask them, and ask for help, ask for advice. You know, you'll be surprised, and I say this to everyone, how people that are successful want to help people. They want to give advice. They want to bestow their knowledge upon others. You know, they're not looking to hide and and not share their information. And, you know, and some of them are, and some of them, you know, I, I'm, I'm wrong. But I find that more often than not, people will be open and amenable to helping others. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think in the aggregate, you're right. Most people who have gotten to some level of success want to be able to, to, for whatever reason, for selfish reasons or benevolent reasons, they want to be able to turn around and point to a person and say, I helped make that person better, or I handpicked that person to become the next X. And whether it's because of my own satisfaction that I get out of helping everybody around me or... I get some sort of status by association with your success. Either way, people just really like to be able to say that they had a hand in helping to make somebody else successful. So before we get ready to wrap, my last question actually has nothing to do with the shop that you currently work at and possibly none of the other ventures you've been uh, involved with in the past. So you can kind of sit back for a second and, and relax your shoulders and take your thesis hat off for a moment. But uh, let's say for a moment, you never found your passion for VC. So you had to find a different way to occupy your days, but money wasn't a factor in your decision-making at all. What do you think you'd be doing right now? Wow. That's a, what a question. Um, <laughs> It's, you know, listen, you know, I, it's a tough one. You know, I'm one of those guys that from the age of 15, I knew what I wanted to do. It was, I never, I never went into the business that I'm in with the thought of making money. So I think that's, you know, originally 
I always wanted to be a dentist, you know, from if, if I'm honest with you. <laughs> I had plans to be a dentist, you know, <laughs> you're Jewish, what are you? You're either a lawyer, a doctor, or a dentist. And, you know, I was going to take that path because I thought, you know, am I going to go to medical school and study eight to 10 years? Am I going to go to law school? You know, you had to do a bachelor degree and a, and a, a second degree would have taken me six to seven years, then I'd have to do internships. So it's also yeah. eight, nine years. Dentists five years, you know, in Canada when I was growing up. It's an easy <laughs> one. My father's best, closest, one of my father's closest friends or best friends was a dentist. And, you know, he always, he, he lived the best life. He worked three, four days a week and he was always out playing golf, hanging out with the buddies, having a good time. And, you know, that dream died. I was, you know, I was 18, 17 and a half, 18, just about ready to go to university. And I cut my finger and all of a sudden I woke, wake up, I'm on the floor staring up. I fainted you oh know, from, from cutting my finger. So my dream of being a dentist was was over. Thank God I had the capital markets and understanding of the markets to fall back on, you know, <laughs> and, and that was, you know, my father always said to me, Malcolm, my father always said to me, he said, do what you love. Don't think about making money and you will be successful. The money will follow. So do what you love, have a passion for what you do, wake up. And, you know, I've always woken up. I've never had a nine to five job, really, you know, I got fired from my first, uh, probably my first real job, I got fired from, I worked for Yogan Fruits, you know, the frozen yogurt place. Mm -hmm. And I was, I, I was giving my friends free frozen yogurt. And I think they said to me, I think it's time for you to go. And you, <laughs> and you the bosses, and they sort of casually said, I think you need to resign this job's not for you. And you know, so I've always been an entrepreneur and independent, and and I've been fortunate to be in that position and to follow my passion. You know, and and that's my advice is always, you know, do what you love, don't do what you do to make money, because money, you know, money comes and goes in life. Well, on that super upbeat note, Eric with an A, why don't you go ahead and close us out, sir? I would be happy to, Ron. I just have to draw this parallel. Uh, you may not have become a dentist, but with all the work you do and all the people you've helped, you've put smiles on faces everywhere. So, yeah, you know, similarities. <laughs> Again, uh, Ron, thank you so much for being here. You've been a fantastic guest. Malcolm, thank you so much for facilitating this and bringing him to us, the audience. Uh, and our last thank you always goes to you, listening audience. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening to the Tech Money Podcast with Malcolm Etheridge. If you have not subscribed to the podcast yet, please click the subscribe now button below. This way, when Malcolm comes out with a new podcast, it'll show up directly on your listening device. And we humbly ask that you share this podcast and leave a review as this will help others find the show. You can connect with Malcolm on social at Malcolm on Money. We'd love to hear from you and answer any questions you have, and you can do so by emailing them to podcast at tech-money.com. Again, thank you so much for listening today. For everyone at Tech Money, our hope is that this show helped make you a little smarter about your money. This has been the Tech Money Podcast. For more information on today's topic, to review the show notes, or to catch up on past episodes, be sure to check out malcolmetheridge.com slash podcast. And if you have an idea for a show topic that you'd like us to cover, or you want to send us feedback, the web address again is malcolmetheridge.com. You can also find Malcolm across all social media platforms at Malcolm on Money. This episode was written and created by Malcolm Etheridge with the production, the editing and sound controls powered by Proudmouth. This has been a Malcolm on Money original. Thank you for listening. 
The information shared in this recording and by its guests represents the views and opinions of the guests and does not represent the views or opinions of the host. This content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. This content is not, nor is it intended to be a substitute for professional financial advice. It is always recommended that you seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your personal financial situation. This episode of the Tech Money Podcast is sponsored by Capital Area Tax Consultants. Capital Area Tax Consultants is a virtual tax and accounting firm that specializes in helping high net worth individuals navigate the complexities of the tax code. With our comprehensive tax planning services, our one goal is to help clients maximize savings and minimize their tax liability each year. Our team of certified public accountants and enrolled agents is well-versed in the latest tax laws, ensuring that you capitalize on every opportunity for strategic tax optimization. We anticipate changes and keep you up to date on opportunities to potentially reduce your tax bill in the future. With a focus on precision and strategic planning, we are your trusted partner both during tax season and throughout the year. So don't wait. Reach out to us today to experience a better approach to taxes at www.capgllc.com. Again, that web address is www.capgllc.com.